Where are all the young men at? That is a question that I have received on multiple occasions. Where is the next generation of uh, you know, pastors, the next generation of deacons, where's the next generation of churchmen? It seems like that uh, in many cases and in many places throughout the nation that churches are diminishing in number, uh, that churches are even being forced to close their doors in some instances because the next generation simply is not there. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I'm your host, Joshua Summer. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button just down below under this screen. Where are all the young men at? What I want to try to do is give an account of why this phenomenon has occurred. Uh, and uh, again, this is this is something that I've received questions about from different people over the last couple of years. Um, and it's particularly, uh, you, you know, the case where uh, you see churches that uh, have either been established since the 40s, 50s, and 60s um, that have kind of come up, and, and I speak as a Baptist, and I speak as someone who is in Baptist circles. I'm not really speaking for Presbyterians or, uh, you know, any other Lutherans, or you may be experiencing this problem as well. Um, I, I can only speak for uh, the uh, the relationships that that I've been involved in and the uh, and what I've seen. Uh, so this is kind of anecdotal in a sense. There are some statistics I think to back this up uh, with the whole unchurching movement, the deconstruction movement, and so on. Uh, and you can get those statistics um, on on Pew. But uh, what I would like to talk about today is why specifically in Baptist circles have churches begun to diminish. Um, and this is probably uh, the experience, uh, if you're in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's probably the experience you've had to one extent or another. If you're uh, kind of aligned with independent fundamental Baptist circles, uh, you've probably experienced this. If, you're, if you are uh, involved in what's called the Sovereign Grace Movement within, uh, Baptist, uh, within the Baptist tradition, really coming out of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, uh, where you had basically fundamentalist independent Baptist churches uh, move from an Arminian way of thinking to a sovereign grace, affirming the doctrines of grace, Calvinistic thinking, uh, you may be experiencing this as well. Uh, if you are in the landmark circles, um, uh, and I'm not talking about the kind of the extreme landmarkism, which I, which I uh, would suppose this is happening in as well, um, but I'm talking about the the softer form of landmarkism, you know, uh, uh, the Carroll brothers in the 19th century and and on from them. Uh, or if you're in the King James only, uh, you know, kind of circles within Baptist churches, you're experiencing this, I'm sure. And the question seems to be, why are our churches diminishing? Why are we losing numbers? And why is there no new generation? that's coming up under these older guys that are retiring, that are in some cases dying. Where is the new generation? And so that's what the issue that I want to address here, Um, particularly if you look at a a map of the United States, if you're looking at the southeast region of the United States, uh, you're going to have churches, independent Baptist churches in that region, you know, kind of from Virginia down, that uh, are going to be uh, either stagnant or diminishing. And many Baptist churches in that region have dying congregations. It's not isolated to the south. Um, I'm in Kansas City in the in the north, very much in the north, uh, northern part of Missouri, uh, northwestern part of Missouri. And this is happening 
uh, all over the place, uh, even up even up here. And so, um, and so, what we're looking at is a, a general, I think, if not stagnation, and even a general decline in churchmanship. That is just a, a general kind of commitment to the local church on the part of the younger generation. Uh, and because of that decline in churchmanship, you obviously have uh, a sequestering of uh, deacon candidates and elder candidates that would be willing and able to come up underneath this older generation. So we're asking the question, why is this the case? Well, we have to go back in history. We have to go back in history, not not as far back as the 17th century, I would say, but probably 18th, 19th century. I would say most heavily within the 19th century. We have to go back to this period of time wherein confessionalism seems to dwindle. And churches move from a start moving from in the in the uh, 18th to 19th centuries, churches begin moving from a confessional position to a provisional position. Uh, this will run up all the way into the 20th century and the church's reaction against theological liberalism. So what I mean by confessional to provisional is this. The status quo used to be a confessional position where uh, a Baptist church, uh, again, I'm speaking as a Baptist, so I'm going to address my own tradition, where a Baptist church would uh, confess the faith in the form of of a document that would hold church leadership accountable to the doctrines of the faith. Um, and these confessions, think about uh, the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Philadelphia Confession uh, in the United States, uh, which was an adaptation of the Second London Confession. Um, think of these two confessions uh, as, as kind of the rule of faith for these churches, um, not a rule of faith in the sense that they take the place of the scriptures, but in the sense that they declare and hold church leadership accountable to what the church believes the scriptures teach. Those confessions uh, were designed to address the whole counsel of God. And so you're not stuck in one or two doctrines and you're not you're not really able to, upon consistent confessing of these confessions, you're really not able to have a favorite pet doctrine that you hold up and over every other doctrine uh, that allows you to kind of form partnerships and alliances and even uh, kind of formulate your church around your favorite pet doctrine. A confessional, a confession of faith, an older confession of faith, would hold you accountable to a whole council approach uh, to Christian theology, to Christian doctrine. And so you think of the Second London Confession with its 32 chapters. Um, a lot of people would say that's too much, that it's too robust, that it's too specific. Well, one of the reasons why it's so robust is because it's holding church leadership especially accountable to um, a whole council approach to Christian theology, not just one or two doctrines here and there, or one or two doctrines that we, uh, according to our culture and our cultural preconceptions, believe to be the most important doctrines. So you, you begin with Scripture, God, God's decree, creation, and so on. And you move forth from principles to conclusions, right? And so it orders your theological thinking. And so all the doctrine is there, or the main heads of doctrine are there, and uh, we are held accountable to those main heads of doctrine. Um, and, and so we're not left to our own devices in terms of, you know, pastors being the judge as to... Uh, which of his favorite doctrines he gets to uh, really hold over the heads of his of his church, and in that move from 
a confessional position to a provisional position. Uh, there are several reasons for this, but in that move, you have a movement from a whole council approach to Christian theology to a provisional approach to Christian theology. In other words, um, what church leadership believes to be the most important uh, at the most relevant time becomes the doctrine that is held high. Uh, an example of this is in uh, the way in which uh, Baptist churches uh, approached the doctrine of inerrancy and defended the doctrine of inerrancy. You can think of the Chicago Statement. The reaction was well-warranted. But following from that point on, uh, really the doctrine of inerrancy uh, became the only doctrine that was definitive of conservative Christianity. And so whenever, you know, in these last few years, critical race theory, intersectionality, this kind of other uh, theologically liberal approach begin to encroach upon Baptist churches, you had men who were teaching critical race theory uh, and Conian Christianity uh, holding the doctrine of inerrancy up high, saying, I believe in inerrancy, therefore I'm a conservative. Well, they had reduced orthodoxy down and conservative Christianity down to a single doctrine, a doctrine that at one point was seen as the chief battleground uh, for for Christianity and Christian orthodoxy, um, which at that point in time was, was rightfully responded to, the liberals were rightfully responded to, but to, uh, to, to, to take a doctrine and assess its importance in virtue of the fact of how it's attacked by outsiders, uh, and then exalt its importance over everything else, uh, is is what leads to this kind of provisional approach. Well, this doctrine is provisionally the most important uh, for our time and our day, and therefore anyone who affirms this one doctrine is on the same page as me, and I can therefore unite with them, and and we can. Uh, you know, lock arms together, when really uh, it's not just that doctrine that's the only important doctrine. There are other doctrines as well. So a whole council approach is, in confessionalism is very uh, important for this reason, that it, it gives you an even-keeled understanding of the Christian faith um, and, uh, and does not uh, lend itself as much to a kind of provisional response where we adopt doctrines based on how, how much they're attacked uh, by the world and then, you know, exalt their importance to a place of, uh, of finality and ultimacy. And that becomes the only doctrine that we center around. Here's what happens um, when that happens. If inerrancy is the most important doctrine, and, and, and that's the only way we, in which we assess our friendships, which it is an important doctrine, it's crucial to Christian orthodoxy, but if that's the only important doctrine, and that's the way in which we assess our, our, our Christian relationships, um, then... Doctrines like the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation and the doctrine of the Gospel begin to fall by the wayside as the doctrine of inerrancy becomes really the litmus test of what makes a person a Christian or what makes a person a Baptist. Um, and it's like the doctrine of baptism, right? When we start to exalt the doctrine of baptism to a point where nothing else matters, if you baptize the same way we baptize— then we have fellowship with one another. It doesn't matter if you're a Trinitarian heretic or if you deny the incarnation of our Lord or if you deny the deity of Christ. We all baptize the same way, and so therefore we ought to have commonality and union with one another. Um, so that provisional approach really takes its toll on the whole counsel of God and Christian orthodoxy in general, um, and it takes its toll on local churches. And I think this has happened 
over the last half century or more uh, where certain churches, and I, th- I think in, in Baptist circles this happens, certain churches have exalted certain doctrines, which may or may not be true, to a place of ultimate importance. One of uh, the low-hanging fruit here would be the King James onlyism, where uh, the King James only uh, is the is the uh, Bible to be used in in churches. Anyone who deviates from that cannot fellowship with uh, a King James only church. Um, uh, and uh, so, what you have uh, essentially is this this doctrine uh, that is held high and is in a place of ultimate importance, it becomes the one doctrine to be defended. And so when a new generation comes up that begins questioning the doctrine of King James onlyism uh, and kind of looking for more robust answers, asking more robust questions about that position, the older generation that sees this doctrine as the end-all be-all for the Christian religion, defends it tooth and nail, begins to view the new generation as the enemy. And so then the new generation doesn't have a place within these churches that defend doctrines like this. Uh, I'll use another example in in Baptist circles, landmarkism. Uh, There are a lot of churches in the South and in the central uh, states where, uh, you know, landmarkism uh, is held as an essential doctrine. Uh, Some of the distinctives of landmarkism is, you know, uh, churches that don't baptize like Baptist churches are not true churches at all. Uh, There's a denial of the universal church altogether. Uh, You you know, all all of these kind of uh, distinctives that a newer generation would want to question as to its biblical validity. But once those questions are asked, they're not receiving a robust response and even worse, they're they're kind of being shunned by the older generation, depending on where you're looking. Um, the only person that I'm aware of that has tried to give a robust response, I don't think he succeeds at doing so, but the only person that in our recent, there are actually two men that have tried to do this in, in recent days would be uh, uh, J.C. Settlemeyer, uh, who is a, a dear brother, and, um, and uh, Bill Downing uh, in California. And there are uh, issues out there that we could speak about, but we're not going to. Um, as far as I'm aware, those are the only two men have actually tried to answer, you know, objections and questions uh, in an intellectual or in an intellectually satisfying way. Uh, Settlemeyer is dealing more with uh, attacks against landmarkism by the extreme landmarkists, so he's not necessarily defending landmarkism against those who would who would take a different position altogether. Um, and uh, Bill Downing kind of, you know, gives, uh, tries to give a robust response to those who would deny landmarkism. I'm not even sure if you could get his work anymore. Uh, it's called the New Testament Church, where he he offers kind of that, uh, that point of view and a defense for it. Of course, there's sweeping generalizations. You know, the universal church is platonic and all of this. Um and so I don't think I don't think he succeeds in doing that. The purpose of this podcast is really not to assess that. But in a lot of these churches where that doctrine is seen as an essential for the New Testament church, you have a new you have a new generation coming in that's asking questions like, is this really biblically defensible in light of Ephesians 4? Uh, is this biblically defensible in light of Matthew 16? 
uh, is this biblically defensible uh, given the whole counsel of God? Uh, you know, you think about the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, and, and all of this. Is it, are, are these positions defensible in light of the holy word of God? And there's, and there's a, a, a lack of intellectual engagement with this younger generation that's asking these questions. And so they're either, it's either just a lack of intellectual engagement, or it's actually kind of forcing out seeing the new generation as the antagonists against these doctrines that are held so high that these men are then actually seen as the enemy. These younger men are seen as the enemy and, and forced out of churches. Um, and and they're, perhaps they're not forced out of churches in the way you, you might expect. Uh, they're forced out in, in ways along the lines of, um, you know, well, this is just what we believe, and if you don't believe it, then we don't have fellowship with one another, or then we can't do church with one another, or something along those lines. Um, and so I'm not saying that they're literally kicking them out, of their churches. Uh, but what ends up happening is this kind of siloed echo chamber of a view um, that is seen as kind of an end-all be-all essential to the local church and the doctrine of the local church is defended tooth and nail at the expense of having engagement with a newer generation that's questioning these things on biblical grounds. And so I think that's leading to a lot of... Um, trouble for local churches that are trying to uh, ask these questions, well, wh where are all the young men at? Uh, well, the young men, they're, they're out there, but they're looking for a whole council approach to the Word of God. They're not looking to, uh, or for, you know, one or two doctrines that are held up as essentials, as end-all be-alls, uh, that are uh, echo chamber doctrines, and that are doctrines that uh, you're not allowed to question. They're untouchable doctrines. Um, they're not looking for that. They're looking for a much more robust Christianity. Uh, one of the unfortunate things that happens when we begin to enter into an echo chamber and hold one or two doctrines up that may or may not be true as essential doctrines is we, we, we actually give a false representation of what Christianity is. We represent Christianity as if Christianity consists in these one or two doctrines, and we're not feeding the people the whole counsel of God. And, and, and the people, if they're Christians, right, especially young Christians, they're looking for the whole counsel of God. And, and that's one of the things that confessionalism actually helps with is, is to deliver the whole counsel of God and to, to, to confess the whole counsel of God, not just one or two doctrines that we think are more important than all the others. And so there's a, a, a transition that occurs in the 18th and 19th centuries from confessionalism to provisionalism uh, and, and kind of this rugged individualism that sees itself as uh, not really connected to the recent past or even the, 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 the far past, but as one that is really connected only to itself and its own relationships and friendships that it has in this present life. Um, and, uh, and, and kind of cuts itself off from the historical past neglects the doctrine that's been handed down uh, from generation to generation and and kind of formulates its own novel take on things. And and what you, what ends up happening is the Lord begins removing lampstands, uh, begins removing lampstands because churches, quite frankly, refuse to, um, 
to, to study the whole counsel of God, to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to teach the whole counsel of God. That might sound harsh, and it might sound like a judgment on my part. I don't mean it to be a judgment on my part, but I'm just... I'm just trying to evaluate and assess some of the possibilities for why there are declines in uh, in many churches throughout the country. I'm not writing off also, I'm not writing off the fact that we do live in a day and age where uh, the religious nuns are on the rise. And so you you have you have people that are generally disassociating from churchmanship altogether, uh, and they don't see uh, the Christian religion or religion at all as anything that is useful or uh, or needful. And so you do have that uh, competing. but but I have seen in my own experience that there are thirsty, hungry young men. Uh, who desire to teach and who desire to be part of a local church and and to labor uh, in the glory of Christ, you know, within the context of a local church, um, they're all over the place. Uh, there's 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 no in a sense there's no shortage of them, um, but they're not going to join a church or yoke themselves to a church that uh, arbitrarily chooses one or two doctrines to hold as the standard bearer of Christianity and what a local church uh, should be identified as. They're not going to join those kinds of churches um, because in their view, those kinds of churches have have had leadership that um, that has taken it upon themselves to choose which doctrine ought to be the most important. Some of those doctrines may or may not be true. I don't think landmarkism is true. And I think it's a doubtful thing. And the Apostle Paul says, uh, you know, do not uh, do not sow, uh, sow seeds of, of quarrelsomeness, something to the effect, uh, over doubtful things. In fact, let me read, read that. Um, Romans 14, 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Uh, and I th- and I think that's what's happening in a lot of churches, where a lot of churches are not able to receive those who are weak in the faith. They're not able to receive new Christians. They're not able to receive the new generation um, because they're essentially trying to receive a new generation uh, to disputes over doubtful things. Uh, these are things that are highly debatable, uh, things that there is much disagreement, even within the Baptist tradition itself, um, as to whether or not these things are true. And so to, to hold these things up as the sta- standard bearer of, of what makes a Baptist church a Baptist church is to really try and, and pull the new generation in uh, into disputes over doubtful things. And the new generation of Christians, uh, and I would count myself as a part of that, is looking for uh, a doctrinally robust faith, an orthodox faith, and historical faith, um, a, a, a faith that is fastly grounded in the Holy Scriptures and is discernible throughout the history of the church. Uh, I, I can just say, it, from my own experience and from the relationships I have with with other men who are my age and younger, that's what they're looking for. Um, and I think that that's the wise thing to look for. Um, I, I, I do not think it's 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 wise to to choose subjectively what doctrines which may or may not be true, are the most important doctrines. Uh, Rather, we should be accountable to the scriptures and to our historical past, uh, the the council of advisors that we have in history, uh, in terms of what we ought to hold high as the standard bearer for what uh, makes a church a church, and so on and so forth. And so this shift from confessionalism to provisionalism 
has caused a kind of um, uh, a kind of um, subjectivity in 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 the churches where church leadership will exalt one or two doctrines over all the rest, and that becomes the gate through which the new generation must enter. But the new generation is asking the questions, are these things true? And they're not being met with intellectual engagement. They're not being met with uh, grace uh, and peace. They're being met with mostly, well, if you don't think like like us on these one or two niche things, then you're not going to be part of us. Um, and, and let me just say, uh, in all practicality, like on the mission field, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, not, not, you know, it, it, it doesn't work in the sense that you, your concern, uh, and, I've, and, I, and I know this through speaking to missionaries, that the concern on the mission field is not going to be these distinctives right off the bat that supposedly make for a New Testament church here in the States. And I think that's a big, you know, problem. If your doctrine can't transfer to the mission field at all, um, then, you know, that should be a cause for reassessment. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it should be cause for reassessment in the sense that, you know, you, the, the the doctrine that Christ has given us through his word should be translatable um, across national boundaries. Uh, this is a doctrine for all peoples, tongues, tribes, and, and nations. And so the, it should be translatable um, and relatable to the people um, across all national boundaries. And so if it's not, it's like this is one of the same criticisms that I have of, of, of Christendom, national Christendom. It's very clunky, and it's very difficult to actually transmit it from one nation to another. Um, and and uh, you, you can't do Christianity without all these accoutrements and without all these add-ons, without all these things, and it becomes very inefficient to do mission work, whereas the Christianity we see in the New Testament seems to be very efficient, um, uh, very minimalist in a sense, um, and, uh, and, and, and it proclaims the whole counsel of God. So um, let me see if there's anything... Uh, yeah, I've got like a little outline here. I was going to pull up a, uh, a PowerPoint, but I, I, I filmed one episode uh, with a PowerPoint. I just decided I didn't like uh, the way I approached it there. So I'm trying to actually see uh, doctrinal reductionism, you know, when we reduce Christianity or the whole counsel of God to one or two doctrines, um, you know, which is what happens when we neglect confessions of faith. Uh, and then you have the inquisitive generation that comes up and begins questioning those one or two doctrines. And then there's gatekeeping that goes on and the gatekeeping ends up being a, a self-inflicted gunshot wound because now you're gatekeeping over one or two doubtful doctrines uh, and you're ensuring the death of your church because you're keeping out, you're, you're gatekeeping the new generation, even though the new generation could be perfectly orthodox. Um, and so the question becomes, this is where I'll go here. Where do we go from here? Um, let me, let me end by saying this. I don't want to come off as if I'm, I'm saying that churches that utilize confessions aren't subject to this kind of issue. I think that they are. There are churches that have the 1689 on their website that are also King James only, right? So, um, and so they would be subject to all these these um, uh, problems. Um, and, and so 
when I say confessionalism, I'm assuming uh, an attempt to be consistently confessional um, here that I think makes for, um, you know, healthy, healthy churches. Um, so where do we go from here? I think retrieving confessionalism, moving away from that provisional approach to the faith, where we hold one or two doctrines up according to our subjective and culturally conditioned perception of why those doctrines might be the most important. We, we move away from that provisional approach to a confessional approach, a whole council approach to theology, um, because God's people need a steady diet of the objective principles of Christian orthodoxy and as well as without neglecting the distinctives of their particular tradition. So don't neglect the doctrine of the Nicene Creed, for example, uh, in order to hold high your particular distinctives, but also don't neglect your distinctives uh, for, you know, what is confessed in the uh, Nicene Creed, you know, as if uh, that's the only thing that matters. Well, your distinctives as a Baptist matter as well. And so teach uh, credo baptism, you know, teach Baptist ecclesiology and preach Baptist ecclesiology, but don't neglect uh, the fundamentals of the principles of the faith as represented in a place like the Nicene or Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian definition, um, as it's represented, as those principles are represented in the Second London, you know. Um, that's what a provisionalist approach tends to do. It tends to take a distinctive or what's thought to be like a Baptist distinctive, for example, and it runs roughshod over the principles of the faith, right? The fundamentals of the faith. What makes a Christian a Christian? Um, so we need to re retrieve a confessionalism because it provides an even-keeled approach to Christian doctrine uh, such that we don't get stuck in ruts if we're consistent with it. Um, ministers, young and old, young and old, not just old ministers, and a lot of times old ministers have missed the bus if they haven't been working toward this end already, but young and old minister the, uh, ministers of the gospel need to think about how to pass the faith on through intergenerational churchmanship and ministry, right? And what I mean by that is don't just think myopically in terms of, okay, how can I, you know, how can I get to the end of my ministry and, and retire well? Or how can I, how can I, uh, you know, pastor well until the end, until I can't anymore, and then just give up the reins at some point? Throughout the course of our ministries, as young, old, young ministers or old ministers, we need to be thinking about how to raise up the next generation, to train up the next generation in the things of the faith. Intergenerational churchmanship through discipleship, creating strong churchmanship. That strong churchmanship then gives way to ministry candidates, young men, if the Lord is pleased to give them, young men who desire the ministry. And then all of a sudden you have an, a new generation that you can train up. You can train up. Uh, of course, what's required for this, I think, is confessionalism so that we're not getting stuck in one or two doctrines and we're making that the gate through which these young men have to enter because they're not going to be satisfied with that. Um, they want a whole council approach to, to Christian theology. And so uh, these young men uh, will be provided if there is strong churchmanship uh, and, and the minister of the gospel, the elders or the pastor that currently serves this or that given church needs to be thinking throughout his ministry how he can create this kind of environment 
by the means God has given him to do it. Uh, the recent habit, of course, and this is seen in the SBC especially, the recent habit is for pastors to retire, you know, without even trying to raise up the next generation. They're just gone. Um, pastors, as leaders of the flock, have a responsibility to ensure that flock's health moving forward. I mean, think about Hebrews 13, 17, the rulers of your souls, they have to give account of your souls. Titus 1 through 2, that gives the uh, qualifications of ministers of the gospel. And then chapter 2 deals with raising up the next generation and, and, and teaching young men and women. Um, the gospel needs to be seen as something that is worth handing down uh, along with all of the means and the institutions that our Lord has given to preserve and proclaim that gospel, um, including eldership, um, the pastoral ministry. Um, and 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 that, that entails and necessitates an attention to the next generation. Um, I'm not saying that every church that is lacking a new generation in their midst is doing something wrong. Um, but, but I do think that the ordinary way of how things work is that a healthy church will also have intergenerational churchmanship and ministry. Um, I think that's the ordinary way that a healthy church uh, persists through the generations. And so I would say, I would be willing to say that most of the time, not every time, but most of the time a church is without the younger generation. It is because uh, that church is is malnourished in some way. And, and in many cases, it can be malnourished in the sense that there's just, a, a, there's not a whole counsel of God approach that uh, something like a confession would hold you accountable to. Um, it, it's, my only creed is, is the Bible, and I get to pick out of the Bible whatever it is I think is the most important. Um, and, of course, what I pick out of the Bible is subject to my own in, interpretive efforts and, and all of that. And so there's, there's just no widespread accountability. It's, it's just me, my Bible, and the doctrine that I think is the most important, which may or may not be true. And I get to formulate my whole ministry and my whole church around those things. Um, and that creates, uh, that sows the seeds of destruction in any local church. It doesn't even matter if your church is large right now. Uh, it, it, if that's the approach, the seeds of destruction are sown. Um, I, I've just, I've seen it. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and I think it's, I, I just think it's really important to have an even keeled approach to the whole counsel of God. Of course, that's what confessionalism helps us do. It protects us from ourselves, really. It helps us remain accountable. Brothers and sisters, if this was helpful to you, please consider sharing it. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Again, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So Spotify, iTunes, uh, Podcast Addict. Um, if you have any feedback, maybe you have angles on this or experience in this uh, phenomenon that you could add uh, to this in the comments section. So, so feel free to do that. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.